Hello and welcome to Something Who episode 22. Today I'm talking with Jeremy Bentham, who was there at the start of Doctor Who fandom, wrote many articles for Doctor Who Weekly and the early run of Doctor Who Monthly, and was also the author of Doctor Who The Early Years. And more recently, Jeremy was the host of a number of high-profile parties in London celebrating the launch of the modern Doctor Who series. So, welcome to Something Who, Jeremy. I'm absolutely delighted to be there, Richard. That's great. It's it's fantastic to be able to talk to you. And I think some of the things I'm keen to, to chat with you today are uh, about those early days of fandom that sort of pre- preceded my brush with it, and I think also the formative times at what became Doctor Who magazine. But I guess to start off with, I'm interested to know how you first encountered Doctor Who and, and how you became a fan of the of the series. <laughs> That's actually a very easy question to, to answer, since it's it's been ingrained my, in my mind for a great period of time. I actually came to Doctor Who the Thursday before it started on right. BBC television in yeah. 63, because I was, I was off school with uh, some malaise or whatever. Uh-huh. And at some point in the afternoon on that Thursday, there was a trail for this program that was coming up called Doctor Who, mm-hmm. which played a snatch of the theme music. Now, <laughs> what was peculiar was that I thought the word Doctor Who was spelt H-U. Right. Being of the opinion that this was going to be some program about some oriental mastermind or something <laughs> with dastardly ideas upon a group of, of characters. Yeah. And so when you actually saw it in the newspaper on, on Saturday, and it was Who, spelt W H O. That sort of dispelled my initial um, uh, uh, conceptions about the program, which were, in, were entirely wrong. But uh, it, even so, it was good enough to tempt me into watching it. And like a great many people, I think I was booked right from that very first episode. You know, mm. the, the trip through time was still something that's up until then had never been seen there on either imported American programs, the, the, the few sort of science fiction films I would have seen at, at that age, or anything that had been done over here. So it was truly a good inspiration to want to watch next week, even though the, the, the title, The Cave of Skulls, <laughs> was quite chilling and uh, and actually you, know, you you were thinking well do I really want to watch this on my own so no I was one of the first of those to be watching with a with a with a with a, with a relative sitting beside me just in case I was a little bit too frightened by hmm. it was quite a different television series uh, to to be watching at the time so that's what started starting on the slippery slopes and um, with with only one or two I'll have a minor hiccups I don't think I've missed a, uh, many episodes since then. Sure. So, in which case, you'll have seen all the missing episodes, I suppose, over over those years. No, uh, there were there were seven episodes I never saw due to various school journeys, uh, holidays, and other things that you right. dragged kicking and screaming to. And of those, uh, three of them, yes, I did manage to see when people like Ian Levine and uh, started the process of getting us all to contribute to buy episodes from the BBC. But there are still four. To this day, uh, part two, for instance, of Fury from the Deep, I've never ever seen. Right. Uh, I've never seen part one of The Wheel in Space, so I have no idea what the servo robot looked like when it was toddling around the uh, the silver carrier. So there's still there are still our gaps, but uh, otherwise, uh, once you got to the seventies, it was a, an unbroken unbroken history for me. Mm. And uh, were you as surprised as as Ian was when you discovered that the BBC didn't hold copies of all the stories? Ooh, shocked, I think, is probably the better verb. Somewhere in, in my ancient filing from days when 
as a little punter I was writing to Terence Dix and he was very kind to write back to me from his position as a script editor. He did say the BBC didn't hold all of the Doctor Who's. Hmm. I, I suppose he's still naive. He thought, oh, well, you know, maybe they exist somewhere else or even overseas. So when I think it was the time I, I, I Ian very kindly arranged for me to interview Sue Malden of the BBC's um, archive, archivist in, in the late 70s. Yeah. But that's when the truth was really laid bare of just how empty the cupboard was and how much we'd lost. Said that, a great deal of progress was made quite quickly in, in stuff being found at places like the BBC Enterprises uh, libraries. Um, hmm. Overseas and did a phenomenal amount of work in, in tracing old stuff. But gradually, of course, if you look at the graph of when things were found and, and, and on what dates and where, you can see it's 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 gradually plateauing down. And you are still at the stage now thinking, gosh, I rather fear I will be in the box before all of the remaining 90 plus episodes <laughs> are, which is not, not, the, not the best idea to keep in your mind at any one time. No, well, I, I I don't think I think any of us imagines that everything will come back uh, in our lifetime. But uh, you know, we always hold out hope that uh, maybe something will be uh, have been overlooked all these years, or, or or will come to light again one way or another. Yes, I'm hoping that a few more will. But uh, you know, uh, you've only got to talk to someone like Steve Roberts or Paul Vanessis to realise that there's there's almost a ticking time bomb on the physical quality of these film prints if they do exist. Yes beyond which that you could turn up an absolute treasure trove. But if there's a great pong of vinegar, as soon as they open the film can for the first time, you realise your chances are rather like, as happened, I think, with one of the Morecambe and Wises that was returned yes. uh, a couple of years ago. There was absolutely no way with the best technology available to, to those restoration guys, and they really do work with the best technology, that you could, uh, that you could salvage uh, mm. something like that. Yeah, sure. Is there a particular missing story that you'd like to be able to see again? I mean, maybe either one of the ones that you, you missed out on or, or, uh, or one of the ones that you saw in its entirety. The one I've said a long, long time ago that I would absolutely dearly love to see uh, was Marco Polo. Right. It was a good story at the time. It was certainly, uh, it certainly kept my interest, even though a part of the little younger me was raging at the screen because there were there were no monsters in it, and I think I'd, I'd sort of missed the the violence of the caveman story and the the, the sheer brilliance of, of the Daleks and the uh, the haunting creepiness of the uh, inside the spaceship story. So you'd had seven weeks of of Marco Polo, and the time I was jumping up and down waiting till to get to another uh, monster story. But in later years, particularly as I started researching and seeing the scripts and things. You realize what an absolutely stunningly amazing piece of work was, was done in writing that story. Mm. Looking at Warris Hussain's credits as a director, you realize what he, he, he brought to it. And with the telesnaps as well, you're thinking, my God, there, there, there is a masterpiece. And you can see why the, the Walt Disney Organization, when they had a UK branch of it, it did seriously consider for a while making a filmed version of it, uh, which to my mind, if they could have done it with the sort of production values of Hammer's version of She, would look a, an absolutely wonderful piece of work, um, mm. if it was ever to be you know, that possibility ever existed that uh, we could see it again. Mm. Okay. But there's lots of others, Fury from the yes. Deep, <laughs> just to fill in the gaps of the episode I missed would be, would be a great one. Sure. Okay, so 
I, I saw on the internet it described you as a co-founder of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. I mean, is that the case? And 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 how did it how did it come to be? How did it uh, develop? Um, yes, in the broader spectrum, yes, I was one of the co-founders. The actual Appreciation Society by name was started at Westfield College, part of the University of London. Right. And it was started as a college-owned Appreciation Society. It was totally internal. It started by the guys who originally became the president and coordinator of the Appreciation Society when it started up, Jan Vincent Rudsky and Stephen Payne. Uh-huh. And, uh, but at the time, the other people who you might attribute as being the founders were in a way doing their own thing for Doctor Who they just hadn't come together at that point Mm. my own history was um, (laughs) as a result of a bit of a tragedy um, my parents decided at some point that I really didn't want all those huge piles of old Radio Timeses that were cluttering up my my cupboard in my room at bedroom at the time and very kindly decided they were going to lob them out for me and so yeah, come home to find that the cupboard was literally bare. So determined in a way to try and recover as much of the past, I started you know, going to libraries which had old Radio Timeses and buying some of the old ones in the days when you could do that. Yeah. And, I'd st- and the ones that I'd missed and could borrow from other people, I was using to type up synopses of, of the stories uh, as, as, you know, right from the beginning up mm. to the present. So I'd done that. And, and various other bits of typing to try and put Doctor Who into context because, like a lot of people, I was inspired by the original Malcolm Hulk and Terence Dick's book on the making of Doctor yeah. Who and wanted to make a, a bigger, uh, more comprehensive account of the series up from then to, to where we would have been about 1975 when I was still, still diligently bashing away in the typewriter. So I had reference stuff. Uh, Steve Payne, he, he had a he, Got a huge amount of stills that he photographed off television. Uh, there was a young guy in East Ham, Gordon Blows. He was actually producing the first fan, one of the first fanzines, TARDIS. Yeah. And um, you know he he advertised that in a magazine that I was reading as uh, purely as the fact that I'd seen it in a shop called World of Horror, which mentioned Doctor Who fan clubs. There was one in Scotland, and Gordon's publication being done in the in the East End. Mm-hmm. And it was purely uh, a matter of that. I think Gordon got in touch, or the, the College Appreciation Society got in touch with Gordon. Gordon got in touch with me, uh, Keith Barnfather, who wanted to do a sort of swap shop publication for people like, well, all of us who are being driven mad by trying to collect things like Typhoon tea cards. Right. Weetabix figures. I'm yeah. at a point where, you know, I think I was clinically averse to the idea of ever eating a Weetabix <laughs> ever again as a result of getting yet another box and finding another swap that I already had. So Yeah. So you're thinking when somebody said, oh, swap shop, my God, that's a great idea. Yeah. And this guy in as well. And we all sort of came together and thought, well, hey, what, would it be a greater idea to, to move it beyond just the bounds of, of Westfield College, which is ultimately when one of us had the, the purely dumb idea of saying, well, I wonder if the BBC would allow us to do it. And to his absolute amazing credit, Philip Hinchley thought it was a good idea as well. And yeah. Gave us the first mention in Radio Times, which launched the sackfuls of mail coming in to, to take it from a college society to, to the outside world. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, um, I also remember those Weetabix cards and, uh, yeah, the, the kind of uh, desperation to get through packets. Uh, I think I eventually ended up going on to the, um, 
the 12 Weetabix in, in, in a box because he got a, a set of cards with those. You didn't have to um, <laughs> to get through 24 to get a new set. But but yeah, it was it was hard work. I remember that. Well, it was only years later that somebody actually, uh, one of the other senior members of the Appreciation Society time, actually came up and said, well, you know, all you had to do was wait until the promotion finished, write to the company and say you're desperate to fill your collection. <laughs> and they'd send you a set. <laughs> Brilliant idea that was. <laughs> the hell didn't I think of that? Yeah, yeah. Even, the, even the birds outside wouldn't take the stuff if you put it on the lawn for them. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, these these were these times you're talking about were very different. I mean, more than a couple of decades before the widespread use of the internet. So, you've you've mentioned, I guess, mail. You've mentioned adverts in magazines and 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 so on. I mean, how, how did people come to to hear about the the, the Dwas and, and and how did you? you sort of all get together well it, the getting together was purely through commercial magazines like world of horror yeah that uh, there were printing classified ads you know cheap ways right. of putting insertions in saying hey if you want to join the doctor who fan club here's the address and send your stamped address envelope and mm. we'll you know enroll you into the club for the princely sum of something like about you know 30 pence or something in those days mm. so it was it was all very much post base I mean, when I, when the reference department got going, which was my little uh, end of the uh, of the empire, yeah, every morning there would be an absolute thunder of posts through the through the letterbox, and it would all uh, re be people requesting copies of these all these synopses that I typed up hmm. in my formative years. And of course, you were just in the era where photocopying technology was coming in, which made possible to to make all these duplicates, put them into envelopes, and at the end of the day, ship them out to the post office to deliver. So, no, you, you were a long way away from the form where you could do any form of uh, electronic online communication. Mm. Uh, I think one of the big, biggest technical step forwards we ever made as a society was um, while Jan and Steve were still at Westfield College, they created the first database of right. fans. And so they actually had a means of recording who was a member and automating when the membership was due for expiry to put the little x in the envelope saying you know here's your renewal slip if you if you'd like to carry on so yeah in those days that, that, that was that was high use of technology to to keep the uh the swiss roll getting hopefully bigger as more and more people uh, heard about the society sure yeah 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 and uh, so so you've mentioned philip hinchcliffe i mean were, were there uh, ongoing active contacts with the uh, production office in those days Oh yes, I mean, I think then as as nowadays, you know, you were always free as a member of the public to write to the production office. They they always had a very diligent team of well, at least one secretary, sometimes two. Yeah, that would uh, you know send you back the little postcards. I mean, I was I was writing to Barry Letts and Terence Dix uh, as an annoying little squit way way back in the early seventies, asking for any pictures or information or something like that. Uh -huh. If anything, Philip thought the great idea of appreciation societies, it might lessen the load <laughs> on their office by they could divert the more complex and technical questions that people were asking to those that they thought would have all the time in the world to answer it, uh, probably far better than the poor harassed production secretary. So yes, if, as far as he was concerned, it was a, a very symbiotic relationship and it was thanks to Philip that we were able to make as uh, as much progress as we were, particularly even the days before uh, America came on largely on stream. Yes. The program. Yeah, yeah. And uh, were you involved in any of those early UK conventions? 
Oh, well, yes, that was... Um, I, I had to do a bit of research for that, for, for, for Keith Barnfather, when he decided to have a commemoration of the first ever Doctor Who convention in, in 1977, because he wrote to me and said, you know, do you know when we ever had that stupid idea we were going to do it? <laughs> I don't, but my diaries will tell me. So I dig out the one for 77, and there it was on, you know, February the 11th thing. You know, I think the the page entry begins, you know, what the heck have we got ourselves into? We, we just all agree we're going to do this without the slightest idea as to how one actually ran a convention. There's no, there's no book that tells you. No. And at the time, I, I don't think I'd even been to my first Star Trek convention because you've got to give Star Trek the, the kudos of having, in a way, got there first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when we did our convention, first convention, it was in a church hall in, in Battersea with quite rudimentary plumbing and an incredible challenge to black the place out so that you could show um, show film you know film projected uh, clips of ep episodes and, uh, and and the peter cushing movies right when you went to your first star trek convention it was in a plush hotel in leeds and said, <laughs> well that's got to be the way to go for the future yeah and they did get there in the end yes i guess by the time i, I first went along to a a panopticon that was sort of in the mid 80s and that was at imperial college and and uh, looked very very impressive to me as a as a teenager well uh, imperial college was the venue for the second right a convention in 78 and yes that was a you know you, you'd gone from the fort popular to up, up to sort of the bentley level of <laughs> facilities you know they actually had a decent projection room so when the bbc looked very kindly loaded us the, the first episode to to show there you, know, you could do it on a big screen in front of people, you know, many of whom, well, majority of whom had never, ever seen it before on TV in their lives. Um, there's an account, I think, was written at that convention. I said there were people sat there with tears rolling down their eyes just because they were seeing the first ever episode that hadn't been seen since 63 in this country. Yes. Yes, and I, su I suppose when you had guests along, you were sort of at the... At the other end of things, you know, in these days, we're very used to getting the same stories again and again from people. I mean, not not that it's a chore to listen to them, but but I guess at that point that everything was very fresh, and and you didn't perhaps have the same knowledge of what had happened. And and it was very good the the fact that you were able to get the guests for free, right? The the sort of serious fees that have to be paid now for for artists turning up, and and yeah, I, I find the modern convention you know the big ones that are done at places like the excel center or these gigantic conference venues like olympia yeah it's, it's always thinking oh you know all you're getting if after queuing for hours is probably 30 seconds uh, to have an autograph and if you're lucky another 30 seconds to have a selfie taken hmm. and you're thinking no these are the days when when, when you know guests would, would, would mingle with the uh, your uh, the convention goes in the evening and you'd probably end up having long chats with them until the, the silly hours of the morning <laughs> and you're thinking that's why i think some of the smaller conventions even though they're big in scale ones like the gallifrey convention in uh, in los angeles you know they've they kept it just right to keep it to the point where you know everyone theoretically can get a, a, a decent bit of time with the guests they've come to see and i still think that was a way to go and so yes when we were doing them you were counting them in hundreds, and if it was about eight or nine hundred, well, that, that was that was fine. We never ever, in my time anyway, got to the point where you were crossing into the multi thousands as the uh, Americans once started doing in the eighties. Hmm. So, so you mentioned 
the research department and your synopses that you'd got together, you know, from looking at the old Radio Times. But I guess at some point that then crossed over into perhaps some more significant analysis that you were doing. Um, yes, uh, because quickly what happened was uh, people started asking more detailed questions, and particularly one of the perennial ones is, oh, what were all the episode endings for um, The Wheel in Space or something like that, which are a small annotated version of, the, of, a, of a Radio Times entry just wouldn't do. Mm. So, uh, but by that point, I was I'd made contact with people like Richard Landon, uh, who had recordings, right? Yes, off air recordings, and you were able to start thinking, right? Well, I wonder if I can actually start doing these episode by episode, which in some cases were tricky to do because uh, more visual episodes. Yeah, you kind of took through from the deep. It's a good example because you've got a whole lengthy sequence there with hel- with helicopters. Yes. In episode five, um, when you're thinking at, the, at that time, what the heck was going on? And he, even later on, when we, you know, research was getting far more in-depth and you actually had the luxury of being able to go to the BBC's script unit and see the old rehearsal or, or, or shooting scripts. Yeah. Uh, even then, there was a lot of it was as directed. Okay, that doesn't tell me exactly what the cameraman and the director were doing during all these antics with the, with the helicopters. But... Uh, at least you're able to condense it down to a couple of paragraphs to give people the flavour of it. And <laughs> to, to this day, it's it's still the best that we've got until uh, a point when an episode does come up and you can suddenly look at it and think, oh, that's what happened then. Ah, OK, now I understand. Hmm. It, it was intriguing, for instance, when, when they were doing the animated versions of, I think it was Power of the Daleks. Yeah. And... Of course, they have to trim it down for, for animation. You can't show everything; it'd be far too expensive. But there's a bit you can still hear on the soundtrack to Part One, a sort of ba-doink, bang, ba-doink, bang in one of the scenes in the in the prison cell. Uh-huh. And I thought, oh, that's the bit where Trouton's throwing the orange against the wall, like Steve McQueen in, in Great Escape. But uh-huh. yeah, unless you saw it, you don't know that that bit's there because right. it's not in the script. Uh-huh. It was just a little bit of business that had been worked out, presumably between Troughton and Christopher Barry when they when they were shooting that episode. Yeah. So, you know, it was never possible to do an absolutely hundred percent in depth breakdown of what was happening. But yes, the challenge was to at least try and get things down on paper. Um, and obviously, accepting is going to be easier to do the episodes that you just seen a week or two earlier than it was yes. ones from uh, you know fifteen years earlier. Hmm. So, uh, I mean, something that was very formative for me was that in 1979, I started going to secondary school. And one evening on the way home, I was in Leeds Station uh, in the newsagents and I saw issue one of Doctor Who Weekly. And I thought, wow, well, this is this is very exciting. Uh, and so I, 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 I fall forewent <laughs> forego i don't know my my usual sweets and and, and shelled out 12p on the comic instead and uh, so i guess began uh, a more detailed obsession with doctor who i mean uh, at that point i was reading the target books but but somehow i think this was the the you know a deeper path towards you know, you know true fandom so uh, how did you get involved with doctor who weekly uh, that was another instance of people, you know, deciding they wanted to dump their workload on us. <laughs> because Starburst magazine at the time was published by Marvel Comics in the UK. Uh-huh. And the editor of that was a very astute chap called Des Skin, 
and very rapidly during the 70s he realised there was a great deal of interest in Doctor Who, so started writing to the BBC saying, look, you know, we'd like to do some Doctor Who features in Snarburst. Mm. Um, can we come and talk to you about uh, an answer of questions that our readers would be interested in? And uh, the production office at the time thought, oh, well, hang on, if it's technical stuff, well, we can't do it. So, oh, the, the, the Appreciation Society can answer all that stuff for you. So I started getting phone calls from Marvel initially with the idea of some of their staff writers coming along and picking my brains and raiding the, the photo collection for uh, for articles they were going to do about Doctor Who. Hmm. And I think about two or three of these uh, features have been done before suddenly I got the clarion call from, from Des himself saying, oh, do you want to come down and talk about, you know, perhaps something greater to do with, with Doctor Who? And it was that, yeah, that's that first thing about always be wary of somebody who says that there's a free lunch on it. It's free lunch. Because what, what Des was talking about on the recommendation of, of his staff writers was uh, someone who could provide the cheaper uh, alternative to the comic strips for this publication he's proposing. You know, could I be prepared to do text features telling the story of Doctor Who, you know, for a wider readership than had been done? arguably for the hundreds strong appreciation society to do it for a thousand strong order, uh, readership for, for a magazine. Um, so mm. I sort of said yes, thinking, oh, you know, possibly could fit this in one day a week or something like that. Well, uh, as with all things, you suddenly found out uh, it was swings and roundabouts in terms of what you were able to do, because the big problem with the magazine at the very beginning was although they got a contract to do it, um, they had very little, Marvel had very little resources to do it with. Mm. And if you're going to tell the story of Doctor Who, well, you're going to need photographs and a lot of sort of, you know, information to go in there. And so <laughs> you're almost going to the fan base, people like Richard, like like Jan, Steve, etc., and saying, God's sake, can we, can we borrow some black and white photographs? Because otherwise this magazine's going to have an awful lot of, of, of blank spaces in it. So. Yeah. Uh, until lines of communication got established, um, probably more when John Nathan Turner came along. Yeah, you were trying to, to basically put into the magazine stuff that uh, originally had been acquired for for use by the Appreciation Society, but without it, I don't think uh, Doctor Weekly would have lasted very long indeed. Mm. But last it did, and it, it, it had a couple of uh, perilous moments when they. Sales did start slipping, which nearly always happened when the show went off the air for right. you know, six months or so. The first decision of thinking, oh, well, let's see if we can make it more appealing to really young kids. Yes. Particularly the kids who buy comics. Uh, that almost got to the point when the, the, the plug was almost ready to be pulled before they thought, well, how about if we make it monthly and yes. do it more for the sort of older age group type of people that seem to be in the society? and see if what that does and you know, luckily that was the right decision to make because after that sales did pick up to the point where it was both sustainable and commercially viable to continue as a as a monthly publication and of course it's it's never really looked looked back on but from, the, from that day onwards yes it wasn't an easy fight because uh, of course that the bbc were very unhappy about doctor monthly initially because They'd never really come across a magazine. They'd licensed an awful lot of external companies to do 
publications about Doctor Who, you know, poster mags and yeah. uh, specials and all that sort of thing. But something which would editorially criticise what the BBC was doing, that would preview without necessarily, you know, entirely being bound by press releases. That that you know, that was the sort of thing that only BBC publications did, like Radio Times or The Listener. So it, it was there were instances, particularly when errors crept in, and yes, they did. When the BBC came down quite heavily, and uh, there were a few points when you thought, "Gosh, you know, we're we going to find ourselves uh, having the the rug pulled away." But luckily, it didn't happen. And uh, for all the p- things people have said about John Nathan Turner, one of the things he was very good about was seeing the the fact that the Doctor Monthly was a very good vehicle for publicising the programme. And he did stick his neck out on a couple of times to uh, to make sure it, it did continue. So it wasn't an easy path, but uh, hopefully it laid all the, the paving stones that have enabled uh, all the good work that's continued from those years, well, right up to the present day, I suppose. Mm. Yes, yeah, so, so I think I mean, one, of the, one of the early things I remember that I particularly cottoned on to was as a fan in those days, I mean, there were... the there were no repeats of any sort of the old material and other than the target books it was very hard for someone certainly living in Yorkshire and probably living anywhere in the UK to 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 see and understand what those episodes were like so I think those those synopses or, or accounts of the original stories with the photographs they kind of you know it was it was a way of of reliving those early stories in you know perhaps the the most vivid way that, that that we could at that time. So yeah, I I, I think that was one of the things that, that kind of brought that um, uh, how interesting the series was. It was a great period of discovery on so many fronts because you know, you'd had the target books, which you know, they were massively sold as you know, the generation that had grown up with Doctor Who thought to to relive what they'd, they'd gone through. Hmm. Even when, you know, photographs, for, for God's sake, for a long time, there were no Doctor Who photographs apart from the occasional one that appeared in the Radio Times. So mm-hmm. suddenly to have a platform where photographs were appearing on a regular basis, you know, yeah. it's, it, it's seen as just de rigueur now. But at the time, if you picked up an old edition of a famous Monsters of Filmland in 1976 and saw three photographs from the first... William Hartnell Dalek story that that was you know that was cause for celebration <laughs> that was a means of bringing the past yes and it's all become iterative as you know gradually videos started to come on stream you know now you look at what's being offered in terms of being able to relive Doctor Who e- even the obscure ones the ones where story like the Macro Terror which is missing you've got something now which gives you a pretty darn good impression of what was shown at the time, and it will certainly do hmm. until the point at which, uh, you know, hopefully, the Macro Terror surfaces somewhere in the world. One hopes it will someday. Yes, yes, in, indeed. And you know, I've, I've always felt with those animations that you know, for 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 all their faults here and there, it's it, it's it's another excellent way of of visualising the show, and sometimes. Uh, only the visual approach will really work you know you can listen to the soundtrack you can you can flick through those occasional telesnaps but only that kind of frame by frame recovery of it gives you the real sense of of, of what it might have been like oh indeed and you know it they are still the best things that we've got until such time as you ever get a complete version of it 
But even then, you know, people will be interested to know, well, the version that was shown on TV, what was cut out, what, what did they leave on the cutting room floor, is, is there any of that material still left? It's it's still fascinating, the, the interest people have, and even the, you know, the minutiae of, of episodes when they, they were made, and, mm. uh, and how they continue to uh, live in people's minds. That They're a great way of being able to live a story, in some cases in di different ways. I'm sure if the Massacre of St. Bartholomew's Eve turned up, people would be sitting there thinking, oh, the book was nothing like that, which it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> but it still means that you can enjoy the story in, in two different ways. Uh, from you know two totally different narrative styles, so yeah, you know, more power to their elbows. Mm -hmm. So, uh, did did the ma magazine going m monthly make it any easier for you to to have a a bit longer to write, or did it just mean there was more that you had to write, so it was just as bad? Uh, in initially, yes, because uh, doing it on a weekly slog, you know, given that in some cases there could be five uh, five Mondays in the month, and Monday, yeah. Originally, when I used to devote time to doing them weekly, suddenly all you had to do was almost worry about only doing you know, a couple more articles over the base of month. That was initially easier. But again, Doctor Who chews up material so fast, hmm. and there's always a hunger for, for, for something new. And as, as season 18 came along, of course, the editor, Alan McKenzie and Paul Neary said, well, you know, hey, we you know it'd be a great idea if we trail the shows that are on coming up on television. So suddenly you're on this big hunt to try and find graphic material, a bit of information about uh, the Leisure Hive and what's going to go into it. Um, and then afterwards, I say, well, you know, as a magazine, we should kind of print what what we thought of the of the episode. So suddenly a review is required. So. And, oh, by the way, did we tell you we're going up from 36 pages to 44? <laughs> oh, joy, yeah, no problem, <laughs> what a great idea. <laughs> okay, no, I really didn't need to worry about sleeping at night. Yeah. Really quite well, let's see what we can do yeah. about that. So yeah. there was all that business. And, and again, because at the time the BBC was very taciturn about what he was going to tell you, I suppose, it hasn't changed that much these days. Yeah. Um, you're always trying to see if you could find something out to, to, to fill the pages, you know, at least try and get to see a copy of a script, even if you knew you couldn't blow any, well, you wouldn't want to blow any big surprises or be showstoppers in there. But at least you wanted a flavour of what the, the production was going to look like, uh, what the what the, uh, what the flavour of it would be to, to try and give it a trail. Mm. And I suppose the plus point of that was eventually you know, John Nathan Turner realised he had Reviews probably a good idea, but can I have a bit more of an input to them, please, rather than you just, you know, raid, trying to raid my uh, raid illicit copies of scripts you might have found at a recording session one day? So ultimately, that worked as well and good because you started getting far more in the way of uh, of a, a, a chance to to look at what the program was, was going to be, and more importantly, see the sale what, what they were selling that story on. You know, what were the high points? Was it going to be the, the guest stars of the week? Was it going to be where it was filmed? Or anything particular that was going to happen that you could cryptically allude to without sort of blowing the gaff? Hmm. So although it, it became hard work, once, once you started to try and get the, the sausage machine working, you could start to rely, hopefully, on, on stuff turning up that you could use to try and 
um, pull the pull the pages together before the editor started threatening you with death for missing <laughs> deadlines. Happened, like you, happened on a few times. <laughs> Did the fee go up when the page count went up? Did it help? <laughs> Still got bags of KP nuts in the attic now, which, which tells you what the salary was like. up since. I mean, it's uh, it's <laughs> Doctor's. So many ways, Doctor Who is something that you end up doing for love. I mean, you look yeah. at all the work people like the restoration team do. Yes. And if they were doing it commercially, they would be asking Spiegelberg le le levels of, of recompense for what they do. Yeah. With Doctor Who, they would sit there, you know, silly hours in the morning, just to make sure the extras on a particular disc were going to be the absolute best the world has ever seen. And I think it's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's long overdue that in a way... They got that recognition because the Doctor Who releases, well, it's even the, the, the original DVDs, the reconstructions, the Blu-rays, mm -hmm. all of them have a degree of effort put into it that uh, very few other discs, even the big blockbusters, mm. have going alongside them. But that's just what Doctor Who people do. And they've you know, done it in Target books, they've done it in magazines, they've done it in DVDs, and they've done it on audio. So it's... It's not some. It, it's something that once it gets into your blood, it just doesn't let go, and, and I don't think it ever will. I think I'm almost almost living proof of that. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's it's uh, what forty or forty five, maybe slightly more than that years that it's um, taken in my life, and I don't think it's relinquishing it anytime soon either. So, uh, yeah. It's a disease for which there's no cure, and you never seem to want a cure, which is the <laughs> well, exactly. The yeah, yeah. No, we, we we still love it, which is great. Like the little kid that was frightened seeing the first Dalek episode, you were terrified, but there's no way you weren't going to go back the next week and watch it again. It's a it's a masochism that you enjoy, which is quite worrying in a way. Mm -hmm. So you also wrote that book, Doctor Who, the early years, and and I think that was also a, a, um, where you brought together some of the personal collections of um, Ray Kuzik and Barry Newbury to, to illustrate it. Just just Ray, unfortunately, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. Barry was on the, on the list, but it was purely Ray. Okay, sure. And, I mean, I guess that was a way for you to, to recreate the, you know, that, that excitement you'd had for, as, an, as a boy watching those early shows. It, well, yes, that was, that was a very big part of it, because... Ray was one of those people that had a phenomenal uh, photographic collection because he'd happened to buy himself a very nice camera right. just the time you start to work on Doctor Who. So he had all this wonderful colour stuff, all these wonderful black and whites. He kept all his technical drawings, construction drawings, conceptual artwork, everything. And you thought, well, oh, God, you know, this, this, is, this, this story cries out to be told because everyone always says, oh, Daleks were created by... Terry Nation. Well, yes, he wrote the words, and he does deserve the, the plaudits for that. Mm. But he didn't create the design. He, he, you know, he wasn't the one that designed the Concorde, designed the the mini uh, the mini car. He was the guy that designed the Dalek, which is every bit as iconic a design. And there was sort of a wish to see justice served for for Ray's contribution to to Doctor Who, which it, which was vast. And because I'd been working quite closely with the author Peter Haining, right, and three or four big coffee table Doctor Who books from you know Celebration onwards, yeah, and Peter's the one that said, "Well, yeah, 
basically kicked me up the backside and said, well, go and write your own bloody book. <laughs> just worry about just, you know, looking after me with, with my books. Go and do one of your own. And that was, suppose, was at the time of, of discovering Ray's collection. So Peter was away, was my mentor, taught, taught me how to write and you know, not to assume knowledge and gave me an insight into how the publishing industry worked, the book industry worked. And uh, bless his heart, made a, made a couple of introductions to uh, W.H. Allen, uh-huh. uh, which of course had the advantage of a chap called Nigel Robinson being involved with the target range, and he was obviously part challenge so that gave the opportunity to, to come forward with with what you might what these days would be called the pitch document yeah to say this is what you're proposing to do um, mm. because celebration doctor celebration by peter haney had been so successful yeah they thought well the book that's even more lavishly illustrated which has got even more content and it's about daleks mm. provided we can get the the dreaded roger hancock to agree the terry nation component Yes, well, let's go ahead and do it, and that's you know, that's the bit that they did, uh, which then freed me up just to spend all the time that I was doing with 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 Ray going through everything and trying to build up what was going to become um, a book about the early years. Everybody said thinks that oh, I was going to follow it with the intermediate years. <laughs> I say no, no, this this definitely was the attempt to try and uh, redress the balance in a little bit more in favour of, of Ray's contribution. Yeah. And, I was surprised to this to this day that it that I think it achieved that it was certainly um, it did seem to be well received. There was there was some things that happened that gave it something extra than was ever planned. When Christopher Barry showed me those original yeah. telly snaps, the first time I'd ever seen a, a, a telly snap in my life, and I thought, gosh, you know, the first Troughton episode, the regeneration. Yeah. Crikey, we've got to put that in there. So. Yes, that was very uh, serendipitous. That uh, that was that was there at uh, the time the book was being being compiled. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that that's a, a big memory for me. That was was seeing those those photos at the back of the book, and and uh, yeah, very exciting to to get a glimpse into uh, into that part of the story. Yeah, just because it was a behind the scenes piece, and that it's uh, always struck me down the years how much of a thirst Top Two fans have not to know not just to know the in front of the camera stories but also the stories behind the stories so that was mm. one of the big attempts to do that mm. so until chris produced those tally snaps was anyone aware that that tally snaps even existed as a, as a thing memory suggests that, that there was some rumblings i think right other directors had shown frames and things from them uh-huh. but this i think was the first time a that they uh, surfaced from a story that didn't exist and B, they were for all six episodes, right? Um, which, which was quite huge. And I think um, Gary Lever, Doctor Bulletin, that he managed to interview a few people who had copies of some telly snaps as well. Hmm. It was only really when um, I think it was Marcus Hearn that went along to uh, the BBC's uh, research facility at Caversham, who discovered whole volumes of it and then brought them, you know, to light and yeah. Uh, suddenly, Marvel was being asked to, or not Marvel, it'd been Panini about then, being asked to put their fin- their hands in their pockets to to pay to have a whole load of these brought in, so they could be made available to the to the wider world. So mm. those stories that don't exist, yes, they're they're probably the nearest you'll get to uh, giving you a visual flavour. Yeah, of those stories, particularly for ones where uh, photographs are a bit thin on the ground. Mm. 
Sure. And uh, so, I mean, I'm going way out of order here, but you mentioned Doctor Who a celebration. So was was your contribution to that the all the stuff around the episode guide and so on, or was it was it wider than that? The bit that was was laughingly called the Hooniverse. Yes, right. Entirely, entirely mine. But yeah, again, what Peter was one of those people that uh, came round and went up sitting, sat round uh, my, my parents' dining room, surrounded by all the photographs, collections, documents, and things that I'd amassed that time. Um, while Peter was going through, bouncing ideas off and saying, "Well, what do you think to this? What do you think to that?" Hmm. and um, asking me. You know, asking me to be in a way to be the the proof checker for for the for the technical in, integrity of the of what he was getting sourced, hmm. um, because as as we kind of find out, some people in some people's cases the memories do cheat, and Colin yeah. Ford famously always insists that Doctor went out live, whereas what you know what she's actually remembering is the show being done as live, but it was still recorded, so you yeah. had to to bounce between. Uh, somebody being interviewed who's asserting one thing, whereas you know from the the paperwork or or even counter arguments that it was possibly done a different way, and using that as a means of building up a, a picture as to how you know a production was done. So yes, Peter pretty latched on to oh here we've got a Doctor Who expert can help me hopefully you know compile a book that uh, will be read by people and, and not laughed out of court for. Just be a, a, a complete, you know, supercilious overview of the program when we've got an opportunity here to do something a little bit more in depth, which is what ultimately Celebration uh, did attempt to do. Hmm. Sure, and I think also my my memory then of of the early years is uh, as you were describing earlier, all of those fantastic photos and drawings of the different sets. Um, again, it, it, it's a sort of material that 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 I'd never seen before and, and uh, I suppose also helping to bring those stories to life I mean I think as far as the Daleks was concerned the only one I'd seen was episode two which which was shown in the National Film Theatre or somewhere like that I, I managed to I think, I think it was an offshoot in Bradford I managed to get to see that once in the 80s but you know this was this was still before I'd ever seen the story on video so those those kinds of photos and and set designs really brought it to life for me. Yeah, well, I mean, people forget that the, the whole concept of home video ownership of Doctor Who episodes really didn't start until roughly about 1983, and, mm. and the infamous Longleats event that the BBC Enterprises organised. One of the things that you were presented with if you were going along to the I think the merchandise area of that, that event was a little questionnaire which. Uh, UC Enterprise are handing out saying, please send us in the, the ideas for the stories that you'd, you'd like to see. So you're still a long way from, you know, very expensive £25 mm. VHSs coming out, much less, the, the, you know, the, when they went to the, the sell-through, ten nine uh, and uh, towards the, you know, towards the middle and end of the 80s. Yeah. That, that, that was still, you know, a step in the right direction. Just and the whole series was 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 winding down just as DVD was starting off, which started you on a whole new way of presenting the episodes again. My God, when I look back and think how many times I've actually acquired <laughs> a recording on different platforms and different media, thinking, yeah, you know, I'll be paying for a much better retirement <laughs> if I'd saved that cash up instead of every time getting suckered in. Oh, look, the Blu-rays are coming out. Oh, I better buy those now then. Yeah. So, 
it's a it's a never it's a never ending treadmill. I think we're on with Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I remember shelling out what twenty five quid for the um, the Seeds of Death when it came out, and I mean that that, that was still uh, you know fantastic um, for a a teenager to watch. You know, take it home and and, and watch it several times and 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 bringing that era to life. I mean, perhaps not the greatest Patrick Troughton story, but nonetheless, you know, the chance to see him on screen was was great. And then you know, years later, you, you you get the DVD come out, and and the picture quality is you know completely different. So you know the the VHS very faded, you, you, um, and 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 you know quite quite poor in some places. Whereas a DVD, they've worked some kind of miracle on it, and it's it's really sharp. I mean, I guess they must have found different negatives or something, but it's it it, it, it sort of feels much more like um, uh, you're watching the show as it went out. Partly, it's the technology they can bring to bear on it. You look at what the vidfire system has done hmm. in terms of being able to give you, you know, sharper, clearer images of things like Dalek invasion of Earth. You know, it you're you're at the point of which the quality is better than you would have seen on a four or five line television watching it in in 1964, and that's that's an incredible uh, achievement to show you a, a Doctor episode better than. And when it were originally went out, which mm. uh, so I think that's why the all the the releases in whatever platforms they put them onto these days continually uh, are so successful. You look look at BBC or BBC Studios, they call themselves now, which was worldwide, which was Enterprises. You know, they didn't think that Tom Baker Blu-rays, the very first one when they did uh, season twelve, mm. thought, "Oh no, you know, we'll just be very conservative on that." And next thing you know. It's about sold out three times over, and people are jumping up and down because they they couldn't even acquire it. I mean, recently, the BBC has suddenly figured out, oh, what a good idea it would be to re-release that because yeah. the people who aren't buying the full set because they know they'll never get season twelve. Well, if we put season twelve out and suddenly you can buy it again, well, now maybe you will consider buying all the other ones as well. So, you know, it's fans doing what fans do. It sometimes point the the merchandise is in the right direction. Just say, look, you're shooting yourself in your foot if you don't do this. Mm. And sure enough, when they do it, suddenly they start seeing the rewards for the effort and people's faith in Doctor Who as a product gets re-established all over again. Mm. So, and I, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing out vast quantities of, of, of um, your, you know, your involvement with uh, with fandom, Jeremy, but the, the other thing that I'm aware of is that, uh, and I guess how I... I was introduced to you by Giles at one of the um, Fitzroy Tavern evenings, uh, um, to, just just to say hello quickly. Um, I'm I'm aware that you 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 know you you enjoy these uh, informal fan gatherings and and you um, hosted a number of ones um, for the launch of the new series. How did that sort of thing come about? I mean, is is, is that something you've been doing for many years, or, or was there, was there specifically around the new series that you were interested in doing something or? Um, well, if you really want to take it all the way back to the beginning, it, it was at the time when uh, Gordon Blows was bringing all of us founder members of the of the society together in the first place. Yeah, uh, Gordon at those days was working for the Evening News, and they had their headquarters in Carmelite House on the Thames, a stone's throw from Farringdon. Right. Now there was a pub in Farringdon called the One Ton. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, if its roots go back far enough, it was started by Arthur, the, 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 these kind of pub meets for science fiction fans. Was started by Arthur C. Clarke way back in the uh, 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 at another venue. But 
I got invited by Gordon and says, oh, go along, you'll, you'll see all these uh, science fiction fans. Which, you know, he thought, wow, really? Mm. Well, there's more than just us then? <laughs> <laughs> he went to this place and it was absolutely heaving. Right. With people, they were all in their little cliques. You had the Space 1999 fans, you had the... Uh, Star Trek fans, you had the Doctor Who groups, and you know all they were doing was sitting there gas bagging over a few pints and glasses of wine about the, the topic that enthusiasm, which you know, were the programs or the films that were of interest. Yeah, and yeah, I thought, wow, this, you know, this is as good as it comes. Not only are you discovering that you're you're a Doctor Who fan, you're finding there's loads of other ones, and you know, they all want to talk to you about it. Mm. So that started way back in in 1976. And of course, if you think about any well-run convention, it's always based around that holy triangle of the stage, hmm. uh, the dealer's room, and the bar. You yeah. get all three of those in balance, and the, the timetable you know, allows you to visit all of them. Then chances are you've got a very successful convention on your hands. Hmm. And so when the Doctor Who came back in 2005, I think, I'd been to sort of pubs where they were showing like big scale sports events or something like that. Yeah. So wow, look at the look at the size of that screen. It's you know it's cinema size. What if you could talk the the owner into you know letting us have the the place for a Saturday afternoon? Uh, yeah. To screen a Doctor Who and luckily with Doctor Who being on the weekends, certainly pubs in the city of London tended to be empty. Uh, right. On weekends, so yeah. usually they think well. You're going to bring how many people here? Okay, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll let you have that. Hmm. And so, the, you know, the first one was done for for Rose in in March 2005, and with you know, I suppose with the internet just getting going, it wasn't difficult to to get people to know about the events and to, hmm. to stand up and come along. If anything, as they started getting bigger, you had to worry about going the other direction. Again, oh, God, you know, we can have a little bit of a door policy here, otherwise, you know, we could end up being too much of a victim so in a way yeah. you had to go to having to issue tickets even if they were tickets that uh, that, that people were going to pay for so yes that was uh, another one of those serendipitous accidents that produced something that uh, hopefully a great deal of people enjoyed as they as they got to see it on the big screen and of course <laughs> i suppose in a way we're only slightly derailed when the cinema started getting in on the act and yes suddenly you could go to the nft or to to, to the odeon leicester square and see uh, the day of the doctor or something on a on a massive screen that uh, uh, he, he would be far beyond my uh, abilities to pull together. But mm. as I would say, yeah, but you can't get a pint there at the same time, can you? <laughs> Take a yes. pick as to which one you go to. Yeah, yeah, and or, or I guess uh, it's not so easy to chat to a bunch of other fans about it as well. So yeah, I think you've you've got something going there. Oh yes, the build ups and then the debriefs afterwards. That yeah, yeah, was always the, the most fun because at that point. I'd done all my hard work, and so I could just back and see everybody else enjoying it and, and passing their ideas and thoughts and uh, viewpoints back to me, which, of course, is always uh, absolutely enormous fun. Mm -hmm. Great. Hopefully it will be. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, look, I mean, we, we've, we've, uh, we've taken up the, the hour that we suggested. Um, is, are there, is there other things that you would, you would like to have talked about that we haven't touched on? Oh God! If I started going through everything, <laughs> like when, when people come to me and say, "Oh, yeah, can you give us an idea about you know the early days of Doctor Weekly at Marvel?" You're thinking, "My God, you know, it's a story that's as broad as it's long as it's tall. There are so many things. I mean, my sins. I was a, 
ferocious diarist throughout this period. So the level of detail there is, is, is you can go down to is sometimes quite frightening, and you realise yeah. well, that's not going to fill one article. That's can be five, and I'm certainly not writing all of those. <laughs> so no, in, in terms of giving a rough overview of what I've tried to to, to, to do in terms of my little part of fandom, yes, I think I've covered everything. Mm. Richard. Um, <laughs> if it's going to be anything more in detail on that, we'll go along to the go along to the Fitzroy Tavern, and <laughs> maybe I'll give you a bit more detail about it. Yeah, well, yeah, it's I mean, been fascinating digging the, some of these memories out of the vault, Richard. So thank you for the for the invitation. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it, it, it's uh, it's it's fascinating to talk to you about something that's you know it's it's, it's part of my personal history. But, you know, in a in the fact that I consumed some of the things that you, that that you uh, created, and uh, uh, interesting to talk to you about it. And, and maybe, just maybe, that you you know, you're talking about your pension earlier on the uh, the secret diary of the uh, Marvel Comics uh, writer. You know, <laughs> could help fund that. Oh dear! <laughs> I, think, I think I'd have to wait until a few people die first, though. <laughs> Like all diaries, they're not meant to be opened by anyone else but the diarist. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, well, thanks, Jeremy. Thanks very much for your time and, and, and for your memories. It's, it's, been, it's been great talking with you. Thank you, and let's, uh, let's hope it's, uh, it, it detains a few others along the way. As Verity Lambert said, the rule to live by is always if it pleases me. So hopefully <laughs> some of these, me these memories just might. Yeah, yeah. Thank you again for the invitation. Sure. I was looking around on the on the web. I couldn't see very many instances of you having spoken on on one of these things. So, uh... no, it was an absolute first for me.